0: You're listening to Policy, Guns & Money, your fortnightly podcast on all things defence and strategy. In this episode, a new defence minister and F-16 fighter jets for Indonesia, Marley talks to Natalie Sambi to find out more. The future security of Australia's north, Genevieve talks to John Coyne about the strategic importance of our north to Australia's defence. But first up, a special guest returns to ASPE for our Two Grumpy Strategists segment. Andrew Davies joins Marcus to chat about the cost of the future submarine program and offer his thoughts on the long-range strike debate.
1: Well, welcome, Andrew. We recently produced a joint piece for the ASPE strategist on the cost of the future submarine project. As we go through time, some of the details are becoming a little more clear, some are still rather opaque. But in that piece, you deployed the famous Raleigh-Norden curve to examine the cost of the Future Submarine Program. What does that show us?
2: What it shows us is that, well, two things. Firstly, that the Future Submarine Program is really expensive which we already knew, but at least we can quantify it now. And secondly, it shows us that as far as we can tell, the program is on track. It's spending what you would expect a program of that size and duration to be spending.
1: I think that's one of the really interesting things, is we know now that the government has approved around $6 billion for the Future Submarine Program. That apparently gets us to about the end of the design phase and start of construction. And based on your analysis, that looks about right. Well, that's right. If they were spending significantly less than that, you'd start to suspect
2: that there was going to be a slippage in the schedule. But $6 billion is a lot of money in any language, but when it's part of a somewhere between 45 and $60 billion program,
1: it's about where you'd expect to be at this stage. Mm-hmm. Now, I think... To me, the really important thing that a lot of people lose sight of is not so much the total cost of the program, but the in-year cash flow. So Defence is a business like any other business that needs to manage its cash flow and find ways to fund a whole bunch of different priorities. Where are we going to hit in terms of future submarine cash flow?
2: Well... For the next ten years, roughly speaking, it's going to be a couple of billion dollars a year on average. Sometimes mm-hmm. a little bit in the early years, a little bit less than that; in the later years, a little bit more. But
1: about two billion dollars a year. So I predicted in last year's cost of defence brief that the uh, domestic shipbuilding program, as a totality, would hit around three and a half to four billion dollars a year. Uh, I'm sort of thinking that's probably about right, based on what you're seeing. I think that that's
2: going to be about right, probably at the upper end of that, closer to $4 billion a year by the time the future frigate and the OPV programs are in full swing.
1: Mm, and in terms of Defence's cash flow, that's about, in my view, around about 30% of their total capital investment budget sort of locked up.
2: Yes, many eggs in, in one basket as far as ship and submarine buildings is concerned. For some time to come is the, the, the real point. So if there are sort of transformative technologies tomorrow that the ADF desperately needs to invest in, there's going to be a real pressure on the budget to find the money for them.
1: Mm. I mean, one of the things I keep remarking on is Defence has a couple of innovation funds that get a lot of publicity, but when you look at them together, they are between a third and a half a percent of defense's total budget. So compared to big platforms, the commitment to innovation is still relatively small.
2: Well, I think that's probably right, but we need to make the distinction between uh, sort of small-scale innovative experimentation and large-scale industrial R&D. So the, the submarine program is consuming $6 billion and a lot of that is sort of research and development and design and engineering. Those innovation funds, the relatively small funds as you say, can actually finance a bunch of proof of concept, prototype sort of things but they will turn into more resource-intensive things if they turn out to be things that we want to productionise down the track.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, you said that with that much of Defence's investment budget locked up, it's hard to find funds to uh, meet emerging priorities. One of the things that has been floating around for a while but is getting some legs uh, at the moment is uh, acquiring a a more robust long-range strike capability. So I know you have some fairly strong views on whether that's a good idea. Well, I think that we need to always remember that it's entirely
2: possible to have enough capability to get yourself into deep trouble and not enough capability to get out of it. And by that, I mean, if we have a long-range strike capability, who are we going to strike? What is the strategic aim of doing that? Against a middling-sized power, we probably have enough strike capability at the moment. Uh, range is an issue. We, we don't have the range of the F-111 anymore. But against a major power, uh, you know, there, there are people talking openly about having a strike capability against the People's Republic of China. That's just crazy for a country the size of Australia. I think it's actually crazy for the United States to, to contemplate striking the Chinese mainland. Um, but for us, I think it's it's beyond crazy.
1: Well, I guess that gets back to the fundamental question that all capability development needs to start with, and that is what do you want this capability for? So I'm not as opposed to a strike capability as you are, but I I fundamentally agree we shouldn't be getting it because we want to go downtown in Beijing and and bomb uh, Beijing. To me, the point of having a more robust longer range strike capability would be an operational one, and that is to complicate an adversary's planning in our region. So uh, it wouldn't be to bomb China itself, but essentially to have a more robust ability to uh, prevent an adversary, potentially China, from establishing, say, forward bases in our uh, region.
2: Well, perhaps. Perhaps. I, I need a little bit more persuasion than that. Um, but remembering that the submarines are a forward strike capability, maritime strike, uh, for the same reason that I'm against a long-range air-based strike, uh, I'm not a big fan of land, land strike capability on submarines either. I think being able to complicate somebody's maritime picture, um, and, and it comes back to a little bit which side of the divide you sit on—the sort of forward defence or, mm-hmm. or the defence of Australia yeah. side of things—you know, Hugh White's view is that submarines are um, are out there complicating the adversary's life, having deterrent value in, in the maritime space, and I'm kind of sympathetic to that view. I think that that's probably the best use of them. Land strike, I remain to be convinced, but the the, the one point at which it does make sense is against someone's forward operating bases that are closer to Australia, in which case do you really need a new long-range strike capability or does the existing strike capability plus tankers do it for you?
1: Uh, Well, my view is probably not. So I've done a few pieces, as you know, in the Aspie Strategists, sort of pointing out how short... the. F 35's legs are when you look at the, the broader South Pacific and uh, Indo Pacific. So I'm not, I don't think JSF really does the job. Um, I'd certainly agree that using the incredibly expensive future submarine as a land strike platform is terrible value for money. I mean, you probably had, most would have eight to 12 missiles on that submarine that cost you $3 billion to make. So you've, you travel out, you launch. 10, 12 missiles, and then it takes them a, a month to get back home again, rearm and get back into theatre. So I would agree that regarding a submarine as a potent land strike capability is a little misplaced.
2: Coming back to your argument about, about the F-35, you, you've got the range of the F-35 with tankers, plus the range of any standoff weapons mm-hmm. it's carrying. Let's turn the situation around. The the adversary that forward operating bases you're going to strike from, what are they flying out of there that we're so worried about, that, that you know, that they face the same range
1: limitations we do? Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that entirely. And they're operating a lot further from home, so it's harder for them to you know, bring all the resources necessary. I guess the thing that I'm concerned about is the Chinese ballistic missile threat. So while delivering high explosives at long range with ballistic missiles is quite an expensive way to do it, with the developments in precision strike, I think now becomes possible for somebody to deliver essentially strategic effects using conventionally tipped ballistic missiles because you can precisely target a runway or a submarine base like Sterling or uh, oh. even Fleet Base East without having to use nuclear weapons. And those weapons have much longer range than any tactical fighter.
2: Yes, including global range. If we're talking about future strike weapons, possibly from orbit, um, I'm not sure what a land strike capability does to protect us from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this, I think, gets at the core of the matter, and that is, if we're talking about uh, Australia versus China, they will always have you know, escalation dominance, i.e., which is just a fancy term for they've got way more options than us.
2: Yes. Well, and that's where I find myself coming back to Hugh White's camp. If that was the future that we have to worry about, and I'm not totally convinced that it is, but if if that was the future we were worrying about, making life difficult closer to to our turf, I think is probably the right answer. It's, I guess, it's
1: just a matter of how close. Yeah. Thank you very much. A pleasure.
0: Indonesian President Joko Widodo appointed former presidential rival Prabowo Subianto to fill the key position of defence minister. Marley spoke with Natalie Sambi, Executive Director of Verve Research, to discuss what this means. Hi
3: Natalie, great to have you on the podcast. Late last month, Indonesian President Joko Widodo appointed Prabowo Subianto as Defence Minister. Um, Natalie, for those who don't know, who is Prabowo?
4: Where do I start? Prabowo Subianto is probably best known as the main political contender against Joko Widodo in the last election. In fact, the last two elections and he's been beaten twice. Mm-hmm. Um, he's obviously been vying for the presidency, and some of that mindset comes from the fact that he's had a long history in the military, mm-hmm. and he's also, by virtue of having been married to the daughter of the former dictator, President Suharto, been very close to power. To Western audiences, he's probably best known as an army officer, having held from the Special Forces as being involved in kidnappings and suspected human rights abuses in East Timor as well. And it was discharged honorably by the military, but um, it takes a lot for them to kick out one of their own. Mm -hmm.
3: Okay, so why would Jokowi have appointed him defense minister, considering they have been rivals in the past two presidential elections?
4: Well, there are two ways to look at this. If we're looking at this as Prabowo as in and of himself, having come from that military background, there is a perception that people from that background have greater competency in dealing with the defense portfolio. So Mm -hmm. from a pragmatic viewpoint, it seems to make sense. Robo will bring to that uh, wealth of experience and and has actually made some very strong statements during some of the election debates about how he thinks defense should be improved. So he's actually set his own agenda, which will be interesting. Mm-hmm. But from a political standpoint, there is a logic to actually including your main political rival into your cabinet. So from Jacobi's perspective, if his aim is to get as much done in his second term, He's going to be looking for stability, mm-hmm. and he's going to be, as he's got this grand coalition, he's been bringing in lots and lots of, of different parties. And so in this way, it's seen as a compromise, but a way in order to be able to achieve some of those political aims he's set for himself. It's very risky, of course. It's like inviting a wolf into your den. You don't know what Prabowo will do, mm-hmm. which makes this boat sort of, you know, fascinating and dangerous at the same time. Um, but nevertheless, can't rule out the possibility that, As I said earlier, Prabowo's background might actually help him in the portfolio.
3: So, has this kind of thing happened in the past?
4: It's not unusual for political figures in Indonesia to to try and make compromises and try and sort of make deals for the sake of stability. Um, And it is the case that in the previous presidency with Yudhoyono, he actually included a lot of parties into his coalition as well. I mean, obviously, which has the perceived advantage of stability, but at the same time, it can also mean that too many compromises mean that you don't actually get through the sharpened version of your policy, it might sort of be a watered-down version. So this, this is, these are the sorts of things we might look for during the course of Jokowi's presidency to sort of assess whether this experiment has worked for him.
3: Can you talk a bit more about the risks of the appointment? So um, what could it mean for civil-military relations? What mm. does it mean for sort of democracy and human rights in Indonesia?
4: Sure. I mean, you sort of have to look at what Indonesia's aims has been as a country since it moved towards democracy after 1998. And if the aim was to kind of get the military out of politics and start this reform process, part of that is getting the military under civilian control Mm -hmm. and building up an idea of civilian expertise. Now, in the case of the Indonesian military, one can argue that that reform process has actually been incomplete. From the military's perspective, they're like, we're totally out of politics. But at the same time, has the national capacity, particularly in the civilian sector, actually been built up to match that? Mm -hmm. and there was a defense minister uh, many years ago who served twice, first under President Wahid and then again under President Idionna, who was a civilian who had the vision of trying to build up the civilian expertise. Now, since then, it appears that Jokowi has appointed military figures in that position. Mm. So what it does on the one hand is it reinforces this perception that military people are the most competent in the portfolio, which in some cases might be true, but at the same time, by reinforcing that, it prevents this idea that civilian expertise can actually grow into that role and inject a different kind of thinking. It's one of the things I always talked about in my blog post. Mm. And of course, for civilians trying to enter the defence ministry, without a strong role model at the top, you're not really going to be incentivized to sort of stick around and really say this is the path for me. So I think there are a couple of factors there that make building up this civilian expertise, particularly resident in the idea of a civilian defence minister, quite important for Indonesia.
3: They're all very interesting points. And, and what does it mean? Um, what does this move mean for the U.S. and also for Australia? Because I know in the past, U.S. has denied a visa to Proboa uh, because of his human rights record.
4: Yes, definitely. The U.S. has definitely been a lot more strident, I would say, on this particular position. There's been a senator in the past in the U.S. that has led the charge when it's come to military units suspected of human rights abuses. And in particular, after Timor, Indonesia was on the top of that list. And that has been a very difficult position for the United States to sort of back down what it's wanted to do, military training with Indonesia's Special uh, special Forces unit, Kapasus, of course. That view has actually changed over time. And I think this year there's been an agreement reached where United States Special Forces will start doing military training again with Kapasus. So that's an interesting development there. Mm -hmm. Um, But Australia, while Australia's position is obviously that it promotes – uh, the protection of human rights through its foreign policy, uh, there have been certain times where it's been much more pragmatic when espousing that foreign policy tenet in relation to defence engagement. So, of course, Australia avoids engaging people with very strong backgrounds and human rights violations. But I think in this case, it is not the first, nor will it ever be the last time that Australia will have to engage with military partners uh, with uncomfortable, with uncomfortable histories whether that be in Indonesia or Thailand, Myanmar, or any other And I think in that case, it will be incumbent upon the government to be able to try and explain how that serves the Australian community's interests and how it serves national interest and how we're staying true to one of those foreign policy uh, tenants at the same time as trying to sort of increase our security. So, yeah, it's not an easy balancing act, but I actually think that balancing act needs to be done properly and respectfully um, towards the Australian electorate.
3: And in your opinion, do you think uh, this move will uh, turn out being a good one for Jokowi or do you think it will go badly?
4: It's a really hard thing to say because if you look at it from Pavoas and perspective, he's lost running for president twice. He could very well go for a third time. Mm. So if he shows himself to be a competent defence minister and a good leader – that might put him in good stead. He finally has some sort of political track record at the high level not to run for president. So that will be very interesting. At the same time, it could backfire if he sort of acts in a way that it depends how the you know, the Indonesian electorate sees it, whether they see him as if he strong arms Jokowi and makes Jokowi look bad, whether they take that well, obviously Prabowo supporters will, will feel that that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, whatever Prabowo decides to do after those five years Um, There's a lot to to fulfill in the defense portfolio. He needs to continue the military's modernization program. He needs to make sure that the military is well prepared for what is inevitably, you know, a calendar year full of of unfortunately um, devastating natural disasters and things like that. And so we shall see. I only hope for the sake of Indonesia that he does a job well done.
3: Yeah, it'll be very interesting to watch. Could you also tell us a bit about Indonesia's desire to acquire F-16 fighter jets from the US uh, while at the same time pursuing plans to buy Russian Sukhoi Su-35s?
4: I think it's really interesting when you look at countries that are trying to purchase different platforms, different aircraft, for instance, from a number of different sources. One sort of asks yourself, like, does the mix-and-match formula work? Mm. The question is really, why are countries doing this? So I think in this case, it's useful to go back a little bit in Indonesia's history. During President Sahato's time, the United States was a very good partner to Indonesia at the time. There was a lot of officers that went for military training there. It was an important source of hardware. But after the Indonesian military was uh, responsible for a shooting of civilian protesters at the Santa Cruz Cemetery in East Timor in 1991, there was a turning point there. It was an atmosphere where after the Cold War, the international community was far more focused on human rights violations. And so, as I said earlier, the United States espousing sort of human rights uh, protections is, is very strongly actually placed an arms embargo on Indonesia. That meant Indonesia not only couldn't buy new uh, new hardware, but it couldn't buy the parts in order to maintain the hardware that it had.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And that impressed upon Indonesia, well, look, you know, it's very dangerous to depend just on a major supplier. What are we going to do, you know, in future if, if this kind of thing happens again? So from that point there on, Indonesia started diversifying more its range of suppliers. Um, and we have a situation today where it has a sort of mixed fleet of, of fighter jets. Now, in practical terms, you can see why Indonesia would want to sort of boost, boost its fleet um, it's an archipelago, and making sure that its air domain is is well protected is one of those objectives. And fighter jets are, are part of that story as well. Um, having said that, it's a question of how does an air force manage having pilots who have to be trained with different platforms, have to have you know the ability to be able to coordinate uh, in terms of communications um, and other sorts of, of sort of elements like that, and making sure that you've got the correct maintenance and, and logistics sort of packages for each of those, that can be quite complicated. Mm. So, But this is the position that Indonesia is in. It's got a very different historical trajectory like a country uh, like Australia through virtue of our allies with the United States. We've pretty much got you know, regular supplies. We've got a sense of reliability there. For a country like Indonesia, there are different historical uh, factors there at play and that sort of makes manifest in the way in which it sort of uh, plays out its defense procurement patterns as well.
3: Okay, and would this be the first uh, major purchase of US defence equipment in quite a long time for Indonesia then?
4: Um, I wouldn't say so. It's still been purchasing... Ah, uh, U.S. equipment for a while, mm-hmm. but uh, it seems to be you know two two squadrons more of of uh, F-16s is going to to make some difference um, in this way. But we'll see see how that goes because Indonesia as well is still developing the IFX KFX, which is a joint project with South Korea. Okay. it's another fighter jet project. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, add to the mix another jet aircraft. So we'll see how this goes for Indonesia's air force.
3: Yeah, sounds like a complex mix. Thanks very much, Natalie. It's been very interesting talking to you and it looks like there's lots of interesting things to watch uh, in the coming months in
0: Indonesia. My pleasure, Mali. Finally, Genevieve interviewed John Coyne, author of the Aspie report, Strong and Free, the future security of Australia's north, to talk through the gap between strategic and defence's actual activities and presence in the north.
5: Hi, John. Thanks for joining us here today on Policy, Guns and Money. Recently, you published a report called Strong and Free, which looks at defence and national security in northern Australia. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this report and what prompted you to think about defence in the north?
6: What prompted me to do the report really was that um, over the last... I guess three decades—not since 1986, when uh, Professor Paul Dib did his infamous review of defence capabilities—have we really given a thought about what is the Northern Territory to our defence arrangements? Secondly, while we, while we could express and say, you "Well, know, the north of Australia is important," what we never really got was a clear explanation why. So, um, what I decided to do was to go back and start from the very beginning and look at. why is it important and how? And from there, looking at how our strategic circumstances have changed and what does that really mean to our thinking since the last three decades?
5: And so what did you find? Look, I think
6: when Paul Dibb sat down and did his original review, he perceived a world where we were half a world away from global conflict. Um, And by that point of view, we were half a world away from great power competition. We were safe, When things came up against us, uh, for instance, you know, Russians basing submarines in Vietnam, um, it still was sort of an abstract concept for us. And out of that came a real feeling that, you know, we as Australians had more than 10 years notice. Mm. And I think that's drastically changed. Even in defence terms, like buying capability in this day and age, I think that that in itself has shown that 10 years isn't a really long period of time. What we see is great power competition closer to home now, and we see that between China and the US. We see that power play being every day in terms of trade and economy. Um, we see a drastic increase in um, the, and broadening of, of national security threats. In the 80s, the world faced an existential threat the end of, of, of humankind in terms of thermonuclear war. Um, I don't think the threat's the same now. I don't think we face an existential threat. But I think that threats themselves have broadened and the reluctance to use certain capabilities has been vastly reduced. So if a decade ago i had said to you, the Russians are going to sit there and they're going to try and kill or execute two people in the UK, one using a chemical agent and the other using a radiological agent, um, you would have thought that that was something out of a spy novel. Well, that, that's fact. If i had said that, you know, the Koreans would try to execute one of their own citizens in a major hub airport in the region... A decade ago, um, again, that's in the fiction pile. Right now, though, that that's something that's fact. So I guess what we're seeing is it's a real change in norms. So so not only do we have a threat in terms of something closer to home, uh, it's increasingly unpredictable uh, in terms of strategic miscalculations and operational misadventure. So in those two points, I make it this way. Increasingly... We could see conflict arise, a short and sharp conflict, hopefully at the worst, if we s- perceive that somewhere over the South China Sea, two 20-something-year-old fighter pilots, one from Japan and one from China, flying past each other at some uh, phenomenal speed and miscalculating and misreading the situation. On the other, we have a situation where strategic miscalculations are becoming um, more and more possible. So, you know, the world is is increasingly unpredictable from a from a strategic intelligence perspective and as a result of that it really raised this issue for me saying well we don't have 10 years and if we look to what chief of the defense force said at Aspie's recent conference he said if we went to war now we'd have to go to war with what we've got and similarly you know what's really important now is you know can what's in the north be sustained by the local economy um, you know, the local infrastructure, etc. And I think the answer to that is, is at the moment we need to do more work.
5: Mm. Yeah. You talk a bit in the report about the growing gap between strategic commitments made in the North and actual activities that are present up there. What um, ones did you identify specifically that need to be?
6: Um, look, there can no be no doubt that realistically that everybody says that the North is important. Both mm. sides of politics. Um, Defence white papers, um, we have all of that. But on the other side of the the equation, what we see is that at the moment we're at an 11-year low for the number of ADF personnel in north of Australia. Um, we see a, dra- a drastic reduction in the number of exercises and their scale. In the early 90s, we saw these great big Defence of Australia exercises called kangaroo exercises that extend across the whole of the north, We don't see that sort of exercise anymore. Now, whether we need it, well, that's debatable. We can talk about that. And we see a reduction in capabilities themselves. What we saw is the movement of um, uh, one armoured regiment's tanks. So uh, the ones that were allocated to the 1st Brigade have now gone to Adelaide. The remainder have been relocated to other brigades across Australia. So we see whole units and formations being removed out of the north, and that has really drastic impacts on defence capability.
5: Do you think that there's a particular role for industry there in being able to better support reinvigorating defence in the north?
6: Um, Look, I think so. I think that um, in terms of industry itself, what we see is two things. The first is is that I think we need to reconceptualise how industry supports defence in the north. And secondly, we don't necessarily always have to have, and this is where sometimes the report, my report itself is a little bit misunderstood at times by some people. So some people think it's like a rally cry for putting more troops in the north of Australia. But it's not that. It's saying that we need to have the north of Australia ready to be able to support defence operations. So what we need to look at is really in some parts is nation building. So, you know, how do we build a socially and economically prosperous northern Australia and have it in such a way that it's ready to support defence? Now, that's a tough question in terms of policy and government defence and whole of government. So above that north of 26 degrees south line resides only about 10% of Australia's population. (laughs) Um, So getting an industry base up there is tough. Um, some of these debates are around the issue of efficiency versus strategy. So, you know, often it is more efficient to put things in the south of Australia, uh, but it makes more strategic sense to put them in the north. Uh, So, you know, it's not as simple as going, we need more more industry or defence industry up there. What it is, is about rethinking our national strategy. So, you know, I often say, we're not going to build subs in the north. Okay. So defence capability gets built in the south and deep maintenance gets done in the south. uh, But we support and sustain in the North, and we need to have the infrastructure there to do it.
5: And so this kind of goes into your idea of having a single scalable defence and national security ecosystem in the North. Is there any more on you could elaborate on that kind of idea?
6: Um, look, where it really came from is um, a sort of a military context when we talked about forward operating bases. Defence normally go to a forward operating base and they operate out there on short notice uh, for short periods of time. And increasingly they're, they're treating... Um, the north of Australia, like a forward operating base. Now, uh, at the strategic level, when you're talking about defence of a nation, uh, or and in fact, this is probably also important, we're not just talking about... Days gone by in terms of Professor Dibb's work, we are talking about defending from the region. Now we're talking about defending with the region. So we're not just talking about uh, projecting force into the region. We're projecting force in the region to assist others. So from that perspective, what we're really is, as we talk about ecosystems, is building a process and building the way we think around what needs to be in the north of Australia in order to support the ADF when they need to go there for a variety of contingencies. So they range from responding to a tsunami in somewhere in the region all the way through to conventional warfare.
5: I think that's a really good point about now having to work with the region as opposed to against them.
6: Look, it's been an important thing, and I think that I can't reiterate that enough. It's mm. a real change of mindset, but I'm not sure that we've all made that change. And again, it was always wrapped up in this thought that the north of Australia is important, we just can't articulate why.
5: Mm. So the report's been out for a couple of months now. Um, what's reception been like in government?
6: Look, it's, it's been really good and really quite open. A lot of support, a lot of debate. At the centre of Aspie's work, and in terms of our charter, the this issue of improving public policy dialogue and providing contested policy advice are our, our two great pillars of our work. So for me, the report has been incredibly successful. Um, we generated a lot of um, commentary around it. Um, not all of it in agreements, and that's not necessarily the test either. Um, so it did, it did it generate conversation? Yes, it did. Has it continued to generate conversation and debate? Yes. Mm. Has it brought about change yet? Well, I think it's too early to say. I think as we stare down the possibility of a new defence white paper. There's lots of arguments for a new national security strategy. And I think the test of how effective the report was in in that debate will be seen as those come to fruition, uh, the concepts, and we start that process and whether they're taken into consideration. And certainly there's good political support for that to be the case.
5: As a final question, maybe, are there any plans to write another
6: report like this? Um, look, there are plans. Um, I guess the two things I really want to do, number one, is is now look at, well, this forward operating base, what would we need to do to make it actually work and operate? Um, what sort of things would we need to think about? And also, sort of, um, one of the issues I raise in the report is the around the idea of, private-public partnerships and collaborations. So, you know, this sort of holy trinity of community and nation building, national security and the private sector and looking at how we can make that work better.
0: Thanks for your time today, John. It's been really interesting. Thanks, Jen. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and you can always get in touch with us via Twitter at ASPE underscore org. We'll be back in two weeks.